All right, church family, we're going to continue our study through the book of Acts this morning. I think as we look at the book of Acts, one temptation that we have as modern people is to read through the book of Acts and wish that our church would look like the Acts church. And so we begin to think, man, God used to do cool stuff. He's kind of a legend. I wish he would do that same stuff today. And what I want to actually share with you this morning is that I think God's doing something really unique in our generation. And I was reminded of that this last week as our staff traveled down to Iowa to go to our network gathering. So Salt City Church is part of a network called the Salt Network. And the vision of Salt Network is to plant churches in university centers, to be a a network of churches that loves college students. And so at this network gathering, we heard about a couple churches that had been planted this year in Madison and Lawrence, Kansas. And then we heard about the vision for two future church plants at Michigan State University and University of Florida. And I was reminded as we were hearing about these church plants that are going to be happening in the near future of the Holy Spirit's movement in our midst and how he is the one who builds the church. One story in particular that struck me, the lead pastor of the church that's going to Gainesville, Florida, named Paul Sabino, was sharing about he was, how he was at a coffee shop discussing this church plant with another staff guy in their church. And they were talking about the University of Florida and the vision for reaching the one million college students in the state of Florida. And as they were talking about this, Cody, the guy he was talking to, said, hey, that guy right there, he has a Florida backpack on. And this kid had just grabbed a drink and was kind of walking out of the coffee shop door. And so Paul and Cody, filled with the Holy Spirit, chased this kid down. (laughs) They chased him down. And they said, you go to the University of Florida. And he's like, yeah, I go to the University of Florida. And he's like, well, we're actually going to be planting a church there. And he's like, no way. And he said, my brother right now is actually part of Salt Company in Ames. And I just transferred down to run track at the University of Florida. And so Paul, in this conversation, ends up saying, do you want to start Salt Company at the University of Florida? And the kid's like, sure, I'd love to. And so anyway, they end up making contact. And this kid has now started a connection group of about 10 or 11 people at the University of Florida. And he was FaceTimed into our network gathering and really began casting vision for our whole network to reach lost college students. The Holy Spirit is alive and well. He is working in our midst. He's working in our network. And what we're going to talk about today is that the Holy Spirit builds the church. It's not talent that God blesses, but it's actually dependence on this person named the Holy Spirit who comes inside and dwells within each believer and gives us the power to do amazing things as a church. And so what we're going to be seeing are really three marks of a Holy Spirit-built church. I'm going to start off by reading a lot of text. So buckle up your seatbelts. Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through 2, 
verse 21. The verses are actually not going to be on the screen, so you're going to have to listen closely. Acts chapter 1, verse 12, through 2, verse 21. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from a hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots. The lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthian, Medes, Ethamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we heard them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. 
I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of God. So in this passage of scripture, we see some different significant marks of a Holy Spirit built church. And we're going to look at three of them. Unified decision-making, cross-cultural impact, and spirit-filled boldness. Number one, unified decision-making. So just before this passage, Jesus had promised the New Testament church that the Holy Spirit was coming. And so these 120 people were anticipating the Holy Spirit coming with power. In the Gospel of Luke, it says that these people spent their time in two primary activities. One was in praise. They would go to the temple and they would worship together. And the other was in prayer. They would gather in a house in an upper room and they would spend time praying together. And the basis of what they were doing, this unity that they had, was this anticipation of the Holy Spirit. But in addition to prayer and praise, they also had some work to get done. And so one of the primary tasks that was on their plate was to pick a leader to replace Judas. So if you remember Judas, he's one of the bad guys of the Bible. Judas decided that he was going to betray Jesus. And so for 30 pieces of silver, he handed Jesus over to the religious leaders of that day so that they could hand him over to the Roman government so that he could be crucified and killed. So Judas needs a replacement on this apostolic team. And it's a decision that is so weighty and is so big that it could have caused disunity in the church. If you've been part of the church for any length of time, you know that the church is not always a beacon of unity. It's not always a place that people think of when they think of a place where decisions are made in a unified way. And what the New Testament church does in this particular moment is they put on a clinic for unified decision-making. And so I actually stole this directly from a commentary because I thought it was so good. I was like, this is awesome. I got to bring this before our church. John Stott's commentary on the book of Acts. And he goes through these different characteristics of what it looks like for a church to be unified in their decision-making. The first aspect of this unified decision-making we see is that there's leadership. So we saw that in the text where it simply says, Peter stood up. Okay, decisions got to be made. Somebody's got to lead the process of that decision. This is true in the church. This is true at your workplace. This is true in your family. No matter what organization or group that you're a part of, in order to make decisions efficiently and effectively, there has to be a leader. So Peter stands up. And you kind of want to know, okay, what's going to be the basis of this decision, this weighty decision. And Peter, being a godly man, decides that the decision is not going to be based on his own preferences or his own feelings, 
but it's going to be based on scripture. So Peter opens up the Bible. First of all, you have leadership, then you have scripture. And he says, it is written in the book of Psalms. And Peter, in this passage, is referring to a couple different Psalms. He's referring to Psalm 69. And he applies this Psalm to Judas. Psalm 69 is essentially about the judgment that is going to fall on a person who betrays the Messiah. And so he takes, there were lots of people who betrayed the Messiah, but he takes this general text and he applies it individually to Judas. So he says, we know what to do based on the scripture when somebody betrays the Messiah. And secondly, he quotes Psalm 109, which says, when there's this wicked person who betrays the Messiah, it says, and I quote, may another take his place of leadership. So he says, guys, based on scripture, we know when there's an ungodly person who betrays the Messiah, that they're going to fall under the judgment of God and that that's going to result in their death. And after they die, what we need to do is we need to find a replacement for them in leadership. So we see Peter stand up. He bases his decision on the scriptures. And then we see a big dose of common sense. All right. Who should we pick as a leader? They're not just like, okay, scripture says we're supposed to replace him as a leader. We'll just take anybody. Raise your hand. Who wants to be one of the apostles, right? Instead, they say, well, what is an apostle? Apostle is somebody who's been with Jesus throughout his entire earthly ministry and who witnessed his resurrection. So who in this crowd sort of fits this bill? Again, they're basing it on scripture, but they're just using common sense. And so they have a couple different candidates, Justice and Matthias. They say, okay, let's put these two guys on the table. Then after they've demonstrated leadership, scripture, common sense, then they pray. They pray. They bow their knee and they say, God, we've used all the different tools that you've given us. Which of these people have you set apart to fulfill this specific place of leadership. And then finally, they seek the guidance that was available to them at this point. Remember, the Holy Spirit hasn't quite come. He's about to come. He hasn't come yet. And so the Old Testament way of making the decisions was not by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. It was by casting lots. It was by rolling dice. But what they believed is that we cast the lots, but every decision is from the Lord. And so what they're really doing is in a subjective way, they are seeking the leadership of God. We've done everything that we can do. God, we're laying this decision in your lap. You make the decision. The lot falls to Matthias. And so he is added into this group of apostles, this set-apart group who will be God's mouthpiece to the early church and to us through their writings. Really big decision. So how does this apply to us today? Well, all of us have decisions to make, right? God has given each of us different places where we have the weight of making important decisions. And I think for a lot of us, we demonstrate ungodliness 
by being indecisive. Have you ever thought of your indecisiveness as being ungodly? Actually, your passivity as being a way to conveniently disobey God. And so we leave things undone and we passively stand by when God has a very important task for us to do because we fail to walk through these steps. I remember I went to college with this guy. He was a really nice guy. From all outward appearances, he was a very godly guy, very fun to be around, very enjoyable to be around. I use him as an example when I meet with college students, even to this day, because it took this dude eight years to get his four-year degree. That takes a lot of talent. (laughs) That is a gift right there. But it's because he could never make decisions. What's my major going to be? What am I going to do? Oh, do I want to take this class? No, I'm going to take this class for a little while, but it's a little too hard, so I'm going to drop it. And so he was a year older than me. And I remember talking to people and they mentioned this guy's name and said, yeah, he's still at this school. Unbelievable. And I just think some of us spiritually in the positions of leadership that God has given us because we fail to follow this prescription that God has given us in, our, in his word, we tend to be people who are indecisive. God has not left us alone. In fact, we'll see God has left us in a better place even than he left the early church because he's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to cast lots. We follow the prescription, except the guidance that we speak is not rolling dice. It's actually by asking the Holy Spirit to direct our steps. And so maybe the simple application for you in this message is make some decisions. Do something. Follow God's direction in your life. Okay, so the first thing we see as a mark of the Holy Spirit in life of the church is unified decision-making. The second thing we see is cross-cultural impact. Okay, it's easy in this scripture where the Holy Spirit comes to get fixated on the miraculous, right? It's amazing. The place is shaking, There's this sound of wind. There's fire. And we start to think, I wish I could have been in that room when the Holy Spirit came down. Wouldn't it have been amazing to experience the power of the Holy Spirit? Now, I think there was a very sort of visible sign of the Holy Spirit to show that early church that the Holy Spirit had in fact come. But the point of the Holy Spirit coming becomes very clear and very evident, and it's not experience-seeking. It's the mission. These people are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and they begin to speak in tongues. Now, some people, when they think of tongues, they think of, unintelligible words where you're having sort of this amazing one-on-one moment with God. But when the Bible talks about tongues, in this specific passage, which is the most clear passage in all of scripture about tongues, it's talking about this supernatural ability to speak other languages. So these people are filled with the Holy Spirit. 
smoke, fire, wind, all that. And all of a sudden, they're praising and giving glory to God in other languages. And all of these people who are gathered in this metropolitan area in Jerusalem begin to hear these regular country folk speaking their language. Like, what is going on in there? So keep in mind, this is unintended. The early church didn't have a strategy meeting. They weren't like, how are we going to reach the people from all the different nations of the earth? Because Jesus told us that when the Holy Spirit came upon us, we would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. They didn't sit down and get out a whiteboard and say, how are we going to pull this off? They got together and they prayed. The Holy Spirit came and they immediately had a cross-cultural impact for Jesus. I think one really cool thing about the day, day and age that we live in is people are asking questions about how we specifically, as the white American church, can be impactful cross-culturally. We're uncomfortable. You guys are coming and talking to me after church. Like, how can we reach people who aren't in the same kind of socioeconomic strata that we're in, who aren't, don't look like us, and who are different than us? And there's sort of this angstiness that's inside of us. I think specifically, probably because what's going on politically, we're really uncomfortable with some of those things. And we're just like, come on. Like, can't the church be the church? Can't we be the people who solve the racism issues? Can't we be the people who solve the justice issues? But at the end of the day, here's what I think many of us are doing. Nothing. We're not doing anything. Because we get on our Twitter feed or we get on Instagram or we get on Facebook or whatever and we see everybody's rants and we just get overwhelmed. And we know that our ability to impact people cross-culturally is beyond us. It's impossible. The stakes are too high. The issues are too big. And we just plain don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do it. If you're looking to me for leadership on this one, I don't know. I really don't. What if we prayed? What if we just went totally old school, went book of Acts, and we just said, I want to be used by you, Holy Spirit. Would you use me? Would you fill me? Would you give me dreams? Would you give me opportunities? Would you give me a vision for this city? Would you give me a vision beyond this city? Would you allow me to push back the darkness of racism and injustice? Would you use me to do that? No, I think that that's what this world needs more than anything else. It needs a Holy Spirit-filled church who knows that the task in front of them is impossible, and yet they seek God for it anyway. Believing that he can do it. Recently, my wife and I had dinner with 
Nate and Jenna Weichel. And it was so fun having dinner with them. Jenna has been in Ghana, Africa, seeking to adopt three boys for five months and three days. And she shared with us about all of the injustice that's happening, crazy stories, things that could be written in the book of Acts, how she was getting up every morning and she was having to, with desperation, seek God's face, to look into his word, to ask his Holy Spirit to fill her. And it's amazing how God is using her. You know, the Weichels, they don't feel like they're super Christians or that they really understand how to push back the darkness, have cross-cultural impact, fight racism and social justice. But because they're just laying their lives on their line and they're willing to suffer, that's exactly what they're doing. Now, that's what we need. If we're gonna become a church who is shaped by the gospel and is making a cross-cultural impact what I think all of us want to have, that's what we need to be. And I think we should do right now. Let's just stop and ask God to do it. And then we'll go to the third point. How about that? Let's pray right now. Um, Father God, um, even as I talk about that, as we hear about that from your word, we want that. But we can't do it. We don't know how. God, they had 120 people. We've got 300 people in this room. Would you give us dreams? Would you give us the Holy Spirit? Would you humble us? Would you surprise us? Would you use us to push back the darkness that to our natural eyes is impossible? Would you do the impossible in our midst, God? Would you change the demographics of this church? Would you help us reach the poor and the marginalized and people of different races? And would they find that this is a home for them, a family of God? Would this place be different? Pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Hey guys, so cross-cultural impact. God wants to use us as a church to reach people who are different than us. And he does this, thirdly, through spirit-filled boldness. Spirit-filled boldness. He wants to use us ordinary people. You don't have to be a missionary or have your PhD to be used by Jesus. Okay, so these people who come and they hear all these people speaking in different languages, some of them are amazed, but there's a group of them. Didn't you think that was funny? They think they're drunk. And here's the reason for that. This 120 is mainly made up of Galileans. All right, Galileans are out-of-towners. These are people who are poor, kind of on the outskirts of society. And so essentially what you have here in kind of our cultural vernacular is you have a group of um, people from Kentucky 
coming up to do some mission work in Minneapolis. And all of a sudden, God has given these youth group kids the ability to speak like Somali and like Chinese. And they're out like sharing the gospel with people and people are like, what is going on? These people from Kentucky, they gotta be drunk, right? Because I can't explain this any other way. And Peter stands up and he's like, no, 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 no. These people aren't drunk. They are God's fulfillment of prophecy. So here's what you have. You have God using incredibly ordinary people. And it's actually in their ordinariness that the Holy Spirit is shining so brightly. And so here's what Peter says exactly, reading again verses 15 through 18. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Even people from Kentucky don't drink at nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Here's who the prophets in the New Testament are gonna be. It's not gonna be the big, big wigs like Jeremiah and Isaiah. It's gonna be men and women, young and old, poor and rich. People from every cultural background and every race. God is gonna pour out his spirit, not just on sort of this spiritually elite class, but on everybody, and they're gonna prophesy. So we gotta know what prophecy looks like because I think when we think of prophecy, we think of somebody who's able to foretell the future. But we get a really good definition of prophecy at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 23 through 25. This is what the Apostle Paul says. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? That's what's happening in this passage. These people are speaking in tongues. People are like, these guys are out of their minds. Here's what Paul says next. But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Do you want people to know that God is among us? Believe that the Holy Spirit is inside of you. Not just inside of me, as a teacher, I'm not the one who's primarily called to do ministry in this church. We're all called to do ministry in this church equally. And God has given each of us equal ability through the power of his spirit to preach the gospel, to prophesy, which means to speak in such a way that when people come across you, it is undeniable to them that God is real, that Jesus is the savior, and that he is coming back and that everyone who does not believe in him 
will perish eternally, and everyone who does believe in him will spend forever with him in heaven. God wants to use you to bring that message into the world. He has poured out his spirit. We talked about this last week. What are you thinking that you need more than the gospel message and the Holy Spirit? Because whatever you fill in that blank is a lie. God has given you everything that, you, that we need. He wants to use ordinary people. How do we know? We know that this is true because of the gospel message. Do you remember how you first received Jesus? Or maybe you haven't received him yet. But the way that you receive Jesus is fully and completely by grace. Jesus lived the life that you couldn't live, and he died the death that you deserve. And all you have to do to receive the life that is in him, eternal life, is belief. And you're saved. And in the exact same way, just as you receive Jesus, you can walk by the power of his spirit. So the way that we receive the Holy Spirit is not by doing good works or going out and trying to love people or going out and trying to do his work on our own, the way we receive the Holy Spirit is as a free gift. We simply come to him and say, God, I'm unworthy. I'm broken. I want to be used by you. Will you fill me with your spirit? And it's through us and our willingness to do that that God is going to transform the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we have so many inadequacies, so many excuses, but we want the Holy Spirit to build this church. We want the Holy Spirit to build us up as individuals. We want to be used by you to transform the world. And that is a tall task, and we can't accomplish it in our own strength. And so we're asking, God, fill us again. Use us. We're your servants. We say yes. In Jesus' name, amen.